Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 18, verses 13 through 27. And this is a part of the story of Exodus where uh, Moses brought the uh, people of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt. And uh, they are on their way uh, to Mount Sinai, and they're almost there. Uh, But before they get there, they've run into several problems along the way. And one of the problems they've been having is, um, well, is everybody trying to figure out how to settle their problems. So uh, that's where we get today, um, is to hear how Moses' father-in-law advises him on that. Uh, Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we do thank you for your word that you've given to us. God, we do ask this morning that uh, as we hear your word read and proclaimed, God, that you would uh, continue your work in our lives, continuing to uh, bring us closer to you and to each other, continuing to shape us and form us into the people that you have made us to be in relationship with you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Exodus chapter 18, starting in verse uh, 13. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around, they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice, and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and and instructions, and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have, every, have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand to the strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. Turning then to our gospel reading this morning from Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. This is after Jesus has been born uh, and is a, uh, a little baby. Uh, this is, yeah, Luke 2, starting in 22. It says, When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of doves or two young pigeons. 
Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the last couple weeks, uh, Kelly has been talking to you uh, from the book of James, which uh, that is a book that is all about not just saying that you believe in Jesus, but actually seeing the ways in which that changes your life and the way that you live day to day. And what James is uh, talking about a lot in there is, you know, it's one thing to say you believe, but if your life is no different than it would be if you didn't believe, you may not really believe. And so he keeps uh, looking at the ways in which um, we ought to be living differently as those who are following Jesus. Now, that said, coming back to 1 Corinthians today. 1 Corinthians is a letter written to a church that's dealing with exactly that. A church that says, I want to follow Jesus. Like the individuals within the church say that. The church as a whole community. We want to follow Jesus together. And yet, they're living in the midst of a culture that is not following Jesus. And it is exerting certain pressures on the church. Various pushes and pulls uh, in order, well, in ways that uh, take them away from the way of Jesus. That's not what they want, but that is where they live. And they are susceptible uh, to uh, falling into the ways of the world, just as we all are. And so Paul writes to them and says, uh, and this is the letter of 1 Corinthians, he's writing to them from a perspective where he has clearly uh, he has a clear perspective on the gospel itself and also on the ways in which they are living and the ways in which uh, they are wanting to follow Jesus and yet are living in the ways of the world. And he can speak to this uh, because he sees it in a way that they don't even see it themselves. Why don't they see it themselves? Because we are so easily deceived. <laughs> and so what they do is they follow the ways of the world and then they label it with Christian terminology. And they find ways of saying that what they're doing that is such a worldly thing to do, oh, that's really a Christian thing. And so they've convinced themselves that what they're doing is right, 
even when it's not. You think maybe the church today has a problem with that kind of thing? Yeah, maybe the church always has a problem with this kind of thing. And this is where we need to go back to the Word of God again and again and again to get that perspective and to show us um, where we have gone off track. So what Paul has been on about in the first four chapters so far, uh, we're going to start in with the beginning of chapter 4 this morning, but first three chapters anyway thus far, he's been talking about this issue of division within the church. And how there are some people in the church that are like, oh, I follow Paul, or I follow Paulus, or I follow uh, Cephas, that is Peter, I follow Jesus. And we've got all these different camps of people. And, uh, and Paul has been just again and again saying, you can label it how you want to, but that's not Christian. And so he's given various illustrations and saying, look, think of the church like a, it's a field. And you, one person plants, the other person waters They're working together. Yes, they're doing different things, but they're working together for the same purpose, right? We understand this. Or he says, or think of it like it's a temple, like it's a building. And so, you know, one person builds and lays some stone, some other person lays some other stone, but they're working together for the same. We understand this, right? That's then when he comes into uh, chapter four and says this. Here we go. He says, this then is how you ought to regard us. As servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. Now, this this may sound a little bit familiar in what he's talking about, this idea of when he says, this then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. He says, now it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Does this bring to mind anything, any parables maybe Jesus has told? Maybe? It sure does for me. It's uh, Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 14. I think if we hear this parable, it will shed light also on what Paul is talking about here. Jesus says, again, it will be like and that it is the kingdom of heaven. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. 
You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your your gold in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has, for whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the, uh, the parable, like I say, that comes to mind when I read what Paul says to the church in Corinth in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, how is it that you ought to be thinking about us? Not as rivals, not as those who are in competition with each other, but as servants of Jesus, as those who have been entrusted and now are responsible to him with what we do with what he's given us, right? Now, when you think about that parable that Jesus tells, uh, it talks about bags of gold. Uh, the original term there is talent. And uh, you probably have a footnote in your Bible on that one that says that one talent is worth 20 years of a day laborer's wage. I did some math, figured this up. At today's minimum wage, if someone were working 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year, um, for 20 years, you're looking at $290,000. All right, $290,000. And uh, so that would be the, the one. Then there's the two and the five. The five actually being almost worth uh, $1.5 million. That's what we're looking at. But there's another way to look at it, which is not just in terms of money, but in terms of time. Because you're looking at the one that's 20 years worth of work, one that's 40 years worth of work, and one that's 100 years worth of work, basically. And so it's almost as if Jesus is saying, whether I give you 20 years or 40 years or 100 years, what do you do with what I've given you? What Paul is talking about here, what he's been entrusted with, is not just a matter of money, it's not just a matter of time, but it's the, the mysteries God has revealed. What? <laughs> what does that mean? The mysteries that God has revealed. That's what Paul's been entrusted with. Well, this is actually something we've looked at uh, through the book of Revelation especially. But it's this idea of uh, something that wasn't known that now is known, that has been revealed. It's not just a mystery. It's a mystery that has been revealed. And so you think about it in terms of, you know, if you read a mystery uh, story or you're watching a mystery movie, and the first time you go through, it's like, I don't know, you know, who the murderer is kind of thing. And you go all the way through, like, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. Well, then you get to the end. It's revealed, Right. Now, if you go back and you read it again or you watch it again, the whole way through, like it's still a mystery, but now it's not, it's one that has, for you, has been revealed. And so you can read the whole thing a little differently, knowing who it is all the way through, right? This is what Paul is saying has been revealed is the, the mystery is, that has always been the mystery, has been who is going to be this Messiah? From the early chapters of Genesis, when everything breaks down, you have creation, good, but then everything breaks down as sin enters the picture. And the relationship between God and his people and with all of creation is broken down. And God promises, though, that he is going to send someone who is going to fix this, is going to make everything good again, is going to heal the brokenness. And so the question has been, since the early pages of the Bible, who? 
Who is this Messiah? And you see person after person after person after person all the way through the Old Testament. And it's like, maybe they're the one. Maybe it is Abraham. No. Maybe it is Moses. No. Maybe it is David. No. (laughs) You just keep going. And everybody falls. Everybody fails. Everybody at some point follows the way of the world instead of the way of God. And so you're still left wondering at the very end of the Old Testament, who? Who is going to be this Messiah? And then you get to the New Testament and you read about Jesus. And you read about, and this is what Paul is saying, has been revealed. We read about it earlier in uh, Luke chapter 2, how Simeon, as Jesus comes in as a, a little baby, it's revealed to him, this is the one. This is the one. Um, and so Simeon says, my, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared inside of all nations, a light, for Genti- a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. There's more there. Let's stop. But this is revealed even as Jesus is a baby. But uh, for Paul, this is something that was revealed through Jesus' whole life and his death and his resurrection. And then even personally appearing to Jesus while Paul was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians. And he meets Jesus and, uh, and has his life turned around as what is revealed to him is that Jesus is the Messiah. It is in Jesus that God is healing the whole world, that is healing all the brokenness. This is what uh, Paul has been entrusted with, this message of salvation in Jesus. This is the message uh, that Apollos has been entrusted with. And so Paul says, so how are you supposed to think about us? Not as rivals, not as competitors, but as those who are servants of Christ and as those who are entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. It says, now it's required that those who've been given a trust must prove faithful. We saw this in the parable Jesus tells. Yes, he entrusts them with these bags of gold, and then he comes back, and they have to give account. They must prove faithful, right? What have you done with what I gave you? It's very easy for us to look around uh, the world and to bemoan all that is going on uh, because of people who don't know Jesus and therefore are living like they don't know Jesus, right? (laughs) That's easy. A little more difficult is to ask the more important question of those of us who have received the message of the good news of Jesus. What are we doing with that? How is it that we are responding to the things that we see in the way of Jesus? How are we sharing the good news of Jesus with those who need to hear the good news of Jesus? Paul continues. He says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. This is such a great line. Here here he's talking about, you guys are looking at it this way, that way. It's like, frankly, I don't care. (laughs) And he doesn't have that feel about it. Like sometimes you see people who are like, I don't care what other people think. And then their good friend is like, yeah, I don't care what people think about me either. Hey, you think he noticed that I said I don't care what people think? (laughs) You're like, wait a second. I think you very much care what other people think. That's not what Paul is doing here. What Paul is doing here is saying, I don't care what anybody else says about me except for Jesus. God is going to judge me, and that is what I care about. And so um, <laughs> there's, a, there's a time several years ago where Jonathan was running track. This is when he was 
I'm a freshman, sophomore, somewhere, in, I think freshman maybe, running track, and um, Jose Moya was also running at the time. And I remember this particular track meet where the coach told Jonathan, here's what I want you to do. <laughs> he said, uh, basically, you don't have a chance of winning this race, which was true. <laughs> there was, there was a, not even an outside chance he was going to place. But he said, so here's what I want you to do. So Jose actually has a shot at winning this thing. So what I want you to do is I want you to go out and I want you to start this race by running too fast. <laughs> Run faster than the fastest runner out there and see if you can spook them. Because maybe they will go, oh no, we've never seen this guy run before. Maybe he's really good. We don't want to let him get too far ahead. And so they'll run too fast. They'll wear out. And then they won't have enough left at the end. And Jose, who knows this is the plan, will just be running his normal race and we'll pass them all and win. And so that was the plan. For this plan to work, you know what has to happen? Jonathan and Jose both have to listen to their coach, trust their coach, and not listen to the crowd, right? Because the crowd is not going to know this is what's going on. And the crowd is going to look at Jonathan running out too fast and going, what are you doing, you idiot? <laughs> you don't start out that fast, you're going to die. And then sure enough, he doesn't have enough, and then he goes, finishes way at the back. What were you thinking? <laughs> I was thinking I better do what my coach says, right? Jose starts off, lets everybody else get ahead of him. And everybody in the crowd going, what are you doing? That's not how to win. You got to get up there. You got to stay in the mix. Nuh-uh. I got to do what my coach says. Now, it'd be great if I could tell you uh, how the race turned out. But I honestly don't remember. (laughs) And you know what? It's actually okay that I don't remember because that's not the point. The point isn't how it turns out because whether the coach had a good strategy or bad strategy, who knows, (laughs) for that particular day. The point is the coach we have always has a good strategy (laughs) and that we ought to be listening to him above all the other voices that may be going, you idiot, why are you doing it that way? I better listen to my coach, right? This is what Paul says. This is how he's living. He's like, I don't care. If I'm judged by you, you think I'm doing it wrong? Fine. What I care is if he thinks I'm doing it wrong. And he says, in fact, I might be doing it wrong. He says, he says uh, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. Like Paul even realizes, I might be doing the wrong thing, thinking I'm doing the right thing. So I've got a clear conscience. It doesn't mean I'm doing it right. But he says, the Lord who judges me. And that's the one I'm going to have to give account to, and I'm living in light of that. There is, again, the humility. You can have an arrogance that comes from the, I don't care what other people think, I'm going to do it my way kind of thing. What Paul has is humility. I don't care what you think because I care what he thinks. And I recognize I might be getting things wrong. And I'm going to stay sensitive to where God is leading and correct where needed. So he says, not to judge. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes that he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. He will expose the motives of the heart. Is that something that brings you comfort or terror? This is what will happen. Jesus mentions it multiple times, that what is hidden will be revealed, uh, that what is 
in darkness now will be brought to light. There is a lot that is done in the name of Jesus from motives that are not good. That will be brought to light. Um, There is a lot that is done uh, that may not be uh, labeled as Christian. That comes very much from trying to follow Jesus. That will be brought to light. Can we tell a difference all the time, here and now? No, we can't. But he says, this is going to happen. What is hidden will be revealed. And at that time, each will receive their praise from God. Just like what we saw in the parable. And then he... uh, Continues and says, "Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, that you may so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying: Do not go beyond what is written. And then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. This do not go beyond what is written. This has been Paul's message the whole time. What he's consistently doing is just going back to the Scripture, going back and showing this is what God has said, and this is who Jesus is." That's it. And so when Paul says, this is what it is, he even applies that to himself. He's not just coming at everybody and saying, hey guys, here's what you ought to be doing different. There's a lot of that in here. But he's applying it to himself as well. How is it that I live in light of the gospel, right? And he's saying, then you will not be puffed up. There's a lot of uh, pride Worldly pride that gets um, brought into the church and labeled with godly terminology, and Paul's having none of it. He looks at this being puffed up and being a follower of one over against the other. He's like, is there anything wrong with following Paul? No. Anything wrong with following Paulus? No. Anything wrong with following Peter? No. Anything wrong with dividing the church? into various camps based on which one you follow? Absolutely. And he says, when you start getting puffed up in your pride, oh, I follow Paul, and Paul himself is like, stop it. <laughs> no. If, if you're getting puffed up because you're following me, you're not following what I'm saying. This is not godly pride, however you label it. Um, you got people who are putting... That, it is amazing to me. I really think that uh, the devil believes or he knows that he can take Christians for a ride by labeling very non-Christian things as Christian things. And we just go right along with it. And this is one of those things. Where we start seeing, seeing the things of the church through worldly lenses instead of vice versa. And so what ends up happening is you have a church that divides, but the way that they divide, they don't see as a negative. They see it only as a positive because they've put Christian labels to it. And so they're like, well, all real Christians follow Paul. Whereas the other is like, no, no, no. You're not a real Christian if you follow Paul because you know Paul's not doing the same thing that Paulus is doing. Paulus is great, man. All the real Christians follow Paulus. You see the problem. And they've convinced themselves that to 
<laughs> that the right thing to do is to cause division in the church for the sake of Jesus. And Paul says, you have been led astray by the world. You are doing the worldly things. You can put Christian labels on it. It doesn't change it. It's still worldly. So, what is Paul doing? Saying, this is how we ought to think about things. This is how we ought to see things. This is how you ought to see uh, Paul and Apollos, these fellow leaders, he's saying, as servants, as those who are serving Jesus, as those who will give account to him. How do we view ourselves? Same way. As those who are servants of Jesus, as those who have been entrusted with the mysteries of the gospel, as those who know the message of Jesus. And so, application. What do we do with this? First of all, two things. First of all, beware of the ways of the world working their way into the life of the church. It happens. It happens all over the place. It happens all the time. And we are naive if we think it doesn't. Beware of the ways of the world working its way into the life of the church. Second, be aware of how each of us will one day give account to God for what we have done with what he has given us. It's in terms of our resources, of time, of energy, of money, property, whether he gives us 20 years, 40 years, 100 years, what do we do with what he's given us? But not only just in terms of those resources, but especially what do we do with what he has given us in terms of the message of the good news of Jesus? How are we those who in our interactions with our family, with our friends, with our coworkers, with those we interact with online, with anyone and everyone, how in those interactions are we giving glory to Jesus? Are we sharing uh, the good news message? There is much more to be said. God willing, we'll have time later to say those things. For now, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.